Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales in Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy. And we're recording this podcast by telephone and Zoom during the COVID lockdown. So please forgive any unusual issues with our sound quality. Hydrography deals with the measurement and description of the physical features of oceans, seas, coastal areas, lakes and rivers for their safe navigation. In 2020, the RA and Hydrographic Service celebrates its centenary. When it was formed, some of the nautical charts of Australia still had the markings and soundings of early explorers such as James Cook, Matthew Flinders and John Lord Stokes. The Bible on hydrography in the 1920s was the tome Hydrographic Surveying by Sir William Wharton, and in it he warned that it is difficult to say that any one step in the construction of a chart is more important than another, as each is necessary for the completion of the whole and an error anywhere may cause a disaster. In this podcast series, we will celebrate the achievements of the RAN Hydrographic Service with two episodes. This episode will cover the story of the Hydrographic Service from its formation until the end of World War II. The second episode will then bring the story up to the modern era. I'm indeed fortunate today to be joined by the current and two former hydrographers of the Navy. They are Commodore John Compton, who in his career commanded the survey ships Flinders and Moresby, and was the hydrographer from 1985 to 1990. Commodore Rodney, who commanded four hydrographic ships, was the first officer in charge of the Laser Airborne Depth Sounder Unit, and to date is the RN's longest serving hydrographer between 2004 and 2013. And Commodore Fiona Freeman, who has commanded the survey ships Benella and HS Red Crew in the Lewin class ships and has been the hydrographer of Australia since 2017. Thank you all for joining me. First off, John Compton. Between those early days of surveying the coasts and oceans around Australia and the RAN taking on the hydrography role in 1920, who did this vital work? Well, it was done by the Royal Navy. And it's interesting to note that the Admiralty Department the Hydrographic Department of the Admiralty, uh, wasn't formed until 1797, which um, said that really they were beginning their trade as well. Um, the whole thing geared around sovereignty and trade. Sovereignty for the empire and trade for the home country and between members of the empire and one needs to remember that at about that time the sun never set on the british empire very wide flung and lots of lots of interesting and different uh, environments in which to work the first real go at this after the explorers like flinders and cook was philip parker king in her majesty's cutter mermaid between 1818 and Australian-born, which was interesting. He was born on Norfolk Island in um, 1791. He had two very competent young men with him, Bedwell and John Septimus Rowe, and they set off to survey the intertropical coasts of Australia and to uh, fill in the gaps left by Flinders and others. There were always, from that time onwards, at least two vessels 
in Australian waters carrying out surveys. They were operating in different areas, of course. Um, in the 1850s, the Colonial Office requested that the individual colonies provided funds to defray the cost of these surveys. Each colony, of course, wanted uh, it had its own priorities for ports, harbours, approaches and routes between ports. Uh, and that system of um, uh, mutual undertaking carried on until Federation in 1901, uh, when that system was stopped. Queensland was the last port to use it. But the list of ships that were operating in the Australian area were enormous. Dart, Alert, Phantom, Deliverance, Mermaid, Paloma, Rattlesnake, Fly, Beagle, Herald, the list goes on and on. And of course, with those ships, there were lots of smaller boats and boat parties uh, where you got names like Pearl and Beatrice, uh, all sorts of little ships. So there we are. The Royal Navy was very important to uh, Australia in its development. Uh, it was coming into its own from a hydrographic point of view and um, Australia was well served. Rodney, and how did you actually do hydrography in the early 20th century? That's a really interesting question. And, and the reason it's interesting is that survey technology didn't really change much um, from 200 years before up until the beginning of the early 20th century. And I've got to say that it hasn't changed all that much. It didn't change all that much after that up until about 1980 when things really started to move. So there was a few hundred years of relative stability. Overall, there are three fundamental things that you need for a survey. You need position, depth and water level. And each of these presents a unique challenge. But I'll deal with the soundings first because that's what everyone sees. The soundings were generally taken by lead line and they're depicted on the chart you know, in various scripts depending on their quality. They're just lowering a lead weight to the bottom on a graduated line. Lowering might seem a bit gentle because it was more like throwing and heaving. Um, in deeper water though, they'd use a wire to replace the line and a graduated wheel on a winch, and that would be called a sounding machine, but it was still a lead on the end of a wire going to the bottom with calibration. There's a lot of other important information that had to be collected, tidal water levels, coastline details, high water marks, safe anchorages and types of holding ground for ships to anchor, and even artistic views of the coast so that um, ships could identify the areas that they were approaching. The early surveys also recorded sources of fresh water to help thirsty sailors who might be in the, in the area or, or even becoming wrecked. But positioning was probably the biggest challenge. The primary means of accurate positioning was by observing horizontal sextant angles from known points and plotting them using a station pointer. Close to the coast for detailed surveys, you might also set up transits and measure distance by observing angles on a subtense bar, that's a, a short bar of a known length. But most of the work was done by horizontal sextant angles between known marts. 
the problem there was that you had to have known marks. So the big challenge in any sort of survey was setting up the control. First, establishing the control points ashore by astronomical observations, and that usually um, was, was tedious work, and then extending that control along the coastline, usually by triangulation or, or traverse. It was much easier to measure angles um, using tel you know, theodolites or, or te graduated telescopes than it was to measure distance. Step measuring distance on a, on a land meant dragging a chain, which was only 22 yards at a time, over long distances, and that meant clearing a lot of undergrowth, and that was very difficult to do. So the easiest thing, way to extend control was through triangulation, where you just measured a, a baseline distance accurately and then measured all the angles in triangles building on one another to extend along the coast. At sea, in some places, distance measurement was done by um, what they call the taut wire measuring device, which um, could actually measure out to about six miles of, of wire dragged behind a boat and tensioned up by a winch. But it was a painstakingly difficult process and could often break. In so triangulation was generally used to establish beacons. Surveys offshore built on these triangles, and so you'd lay beacons at control points offshore and use them to control your surveys using horizontal section angles. The third part was what I mentioned was water levels. And the water levels was, um, is the vertical datum so that you basically know how far the tide is going up and down and how that relates to a fixed point on land. So whenever a tide gauge was established and had to be observed, a tide pole would be established next to it. People would watch the tide pole for the water going up and down. And then the tide pole would be connected by survey levelling to fixed marks so that if it was destroyed or had to be re-established in the future, it could be, that could be done. The daily routine of surveying was pretty much getting up in daylight and uh, because everything was done visually and sleeping at night. A routine day, the boats would be away by 7 o'clock in the morning. The ships and they would steam survey lines, lines plotting a position by sex and angles every two or three minutes. Sounds something like this. Stand by, on left, on right, fix, and then the left angle would be called out, the right angle would be called out, the depth from the lead, leadsman, and then they'd do it all again. And then by sunset, they'd return to the ships and draw up their day's fair plots. The end of the survey, the work would be traced onto a fair sheet and sent to the hydrographic office. And then from the Australian hydrographic office, after some cursory quality control, it would be sent to the UK because at that stage, Australia was not doing any of its own charting um, and all the work was being done in the UK hydrographic office. Interestingly, the echo sounder, which we hear about, didn't really come onto the scene until the late 1920s. And, uh, as luck would have it, I think uh, Moresby had just done some echo sounder trials when she was paid off at the time of the Great Depression. Fiona Freeman, as John and Rod have indicated, there was a lot of work facing the new hydrographic service, not only because you know, the work was arduous and, and, and very technical, but also because we had a massive area to survey. So how did the new hydrographic service prioritise this work and, and what ships did it have to do it? Yeah, well, there's no doubt the demands on the hydrographic service were extensive. Um, you only have to think about how long the coastline of Australia is to appreciate the vastness of a task. 
um, let alone when you expand into the Pacific and into the New Guinea area. So since 1911, there had been calls for a modern survey of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, basically because this was strategically important and more, most important for commercially for shipping coming in and out of Australia. Um, Admiral Jellicoe, in the Navy Defence Report of 1919, also argued for a survey to support the defence of Torres Strait. So in those early years, the Great Barrier Reef and Torres Strait were certainly the priorities, strategically and commercially for Australia. Um, as for the ships that the new hydrographic service had at its disposal, they were quite varied. HMAS Geranium was commissioned specifically for surveying duties in 1920. She was the first Australian ship designated. The Royal Navy contributed um, HMS Phantom and then HMS Herald during the 1920s to assist with survey work. And in 1925, the former HMS Silvio was renamed HMAS Moresby. And there wasn't only ships. Geranium was fitted out in 1924 to carry a Royal Australian Air Force Ferry 3 Delta seaplane. It's the first REN survey vessel to carry an aircraft. The usefulness of an aircraft for surveying activities was confirmed when Geranium, assisted by the ferry, surveyed a very large area of the North Great Barrier Reef. Over the next few years, uh, aircraft assisted both Geranium and Moresby with surveys out of Townsville and Mackay. So ships primarily, but ably supported with an aircraft in those early days, and the focus was largely to our northern areas, the Great Barrier Reef and Torres Strait. Now, John Compton, tragedy struck the hydrographic service in its very first season, in fact, and this probably illustrates the risks of the whole hydrographic Enterprise. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, well, it certainly was in those days a very risky business ashore. Uh, long way between habitations, pretty wild country, uh, very arduous work, tree cutting and all that stuff. Survey parties would go ashore for the day and uh, they would do their observations and uh, they would come back at the end of the day or they would camp ashore for a period of time uh, and um, carry out the work that's been designated for them. Well, Geranium was busy early in her time in 1920, um, surveying on the northwest coast of Western Australia in Napier Broom Bay area. And they sent an observing party ashore, survey party ashore. And the ship's gunner, Warrant Officer Davies, accompanied the party and this was very common other members of the ship's company were encouraged to uh, have a break so to speak do something different get out of the ship he went ashore and he disappeared he got separated from the party somehow and um, they couldn't didn't notice for a while but then they started searching for him and then they had local aborigines help search for him and after five days, um, they gave up the search. There was a board of inquiry, of course, uh, to, to try and determine what the circumstances were. That was held in HMAS Brisbane. Uh, but it was the results of the board of inquiry were inconclusive. Uh, the questions would have been like, was he having any problems on board? Were there any disciplinary problems? Was he having any problems at home? 
uh, you had bad news or what, um, but it came to no conclusions whatsoever. Sometime later, his body was found by local West Australian police, uh, mangled by a crocodile and in a mangrove swamp some considerable distance away from Napier Broom Bay. So it's interesting to note that in the same area, general area in the 1980s, uh, Moresby set up a pressure tide gauge in an aluminium boat, which was attacked by crocodiles. And the reason they set up a pressure gauge in an aluminium boat was exactly because of the danger of crocodiles. Uh, the tide pole watchers would have been in grave danger, particularly at night, um, with their torches measuring the rise and fall of the tide. So um, it was a sad ending for Warrant Officer Davies, uh, but a lesson well learned. Now, Rod Nant, the Hydrographic Service has a time-honoured system of qualifying officers to conduct surveys. And this is, of course, adopted from the Royal Navy. Can you explain? Yeah, the, the hydrographic uh, qualification system was adopted from the Royal Navy. Um, it was effectively um, an apprenticeship system which supported learning on the job to ensure that your survey officers would gain all the theoretical and technical skills that they needed to do their job properly and accurately before they were let loose into a position of responsibility where they could do some real damage. Um, to give you an idea of the emphasis on the detail and accuracy, just about every piece of a survey calculation on the survey grounds has to be done three times. First, it's calculated, and then it's independently checked and signed off by a checker. And finally, they have the ruler run over it again by either the senior assistant surveyor or the charge surveyor. One little mistake can have massive consequences across a survey, especially when you're calculating the control that I mentioned earlier. The age qualification system stemmed from a time before formal training courses were held, but it continued even after those courses were introduced. And what it did, it gave commanding officers a reference point as to what he, responsibilities he might give to a newly joined officer, and also helped him to maintain the focus on what each surveyor, what experience each surveyor needed to get in order to uh, carry out the appropriate calculations and progress to the next level. It was also a good guidance to the Navy officers posting section so that an officer without the appropriate hydrographic level would not be posted to a position where they needed it. And this did at times cause some friction between the hydrographer um, and the Navy officers postings in the past. Just to explain the system, it had four levels of qualification starting with H4, and that was accompanied by a task book. You had to become proficient in those tasks and get them signed off to progress to H3, that would normally take three years. Um, to work your way up to the next grade, it was a similar process. And ultimately, it was about a seven years at sea process to get through to the H1 level. Um, and then from there, there was only one grade to go, which is H charge, and I'll get to. Much later, um, the system was simplified, but that was um, back up in the near the end of the 20th century. Once a surveyor had got their H1 grade, they were then considered technically competent, but they would only be given their charge grade surveying qualification when they were posted in command of a vessel and needed it. Really, a charge surveyor 
is is was a strategic leader with technical and detailed ability. They had to have that full range of vision and precision from a strategic vision right down to the smallest detail because, as I mentioned, one mathematical error in the calculation of a control point could destroy the work of a whole survey. One missed sounding or failing to record an observation such as disturbed water or a shadow which might indicate a shoal between sounding lines might sink a ship. The H-grade system has served us pretty well and uh, continues to do so today. Now, Fiona, Freeman, the hydrographic service has been blessed with many very talented as well as, uh, let's say, colourful officers and sailors. Uh, an early member was Alfred Condor, who appeared to be destined to be the first Australian to become senior officer hydrographic service as the Royal Australian Navy's hydrographic service chief was then called. But what, what happened to him? So Alfred Condor did indeed appear destined to assume the highest position in the hydrographic service. He was one of those, um, as you just said, uh, talented officers within the hydrographic service. Uh, so let me just share a little bit about him. Alfred was one of the original 1930 entry into the Royal Australian Naval College. So that group that became known as the Pioneer Class. Um, after an initial period in submarines, he chose to specialise in surveying duties um, when the new branch was founded in 1920. So he and one of his other classmates were the first Australian trained officers to actually choose the specialisation of hydrography. Um, as was just explained by Rod, the H specialisation has four grades or levels. Alfred achieved his initial H4 qualification in August 1922 and joined HMS Phantom for surveys in Torres Strait and the Great Barrier Reef. He then went on in 1924 to attain his H3 qualification and joined HMS Ormond and conducted surveys in the Caribbean. So whilst with the Royal Navy, one of his reports indicated that he was, and I'll quote, a good all-round surveyor with an ideal temperament. Um, probably good traits for a surveyor. In 1925, he returned to Australia and joined Geranium, where surveys were conducted in Northern Australia and the Great Barrier Reef. He went on and achieved his H2 qualification before then transferring to Moresby. During the next three years, there were two significant milestones in his life. One personal, he courted and married Eleanor Kerwin. And the second one professional, he attained his H1 qualification, which as Rod pointed out, qualified him to be in charge of surveys. Notably, he was the first RAN officer to achieve this qualification. In 1930, he was then selected and departed to the United Kingdom to serve as a Naval Assistant to the Hydrographer of the Royal Navy. The intent with, was this would prepare him to eventually lead Australia's hydrographic service. So he was on the path to that key position. By the end of 1931, he'd gained high praise from the Admiralty. He'd designed a true wind indicator that the Met Office was considering for production. He also represented Australia at the 1931 Conference of Empire Survey Officers and the then hydrographer, Vice Admiral Douglas, had recommended him for command of a survey ship. So at this stage, he seemingly had a bright future ahead. Tragically though, 
Alfred was diagnosed with cancer. And after initial treatment in London, he returned to Australia in early 1932, but sadly passed away in June that year, only 32 years old and with so much still ahead of him. Uh, his professional legacy is remembered though. Uh, through the Great Barrier Reef, there's a reef and a hill that bear his name, as does Condor Point on Melville Island in Northern Territory. John Compton, as we've heard so far, the Royal Navy obviously played a large role in developing the fledgling Australian service. And this is not always recognised. Can you tell us a bit about their contribution and legacy to the RAN Hydrographic Service? Well, it ensured that we were peas in the same pod. We were, in fact, an adjunct of the hydrographic department in the UK uh, for a long period of time, right up until, in fact, 1920. Uh, and then beyond um, from a charting point of view, um, a chart production point of view, because we didn't produce charts until just before the Second World War and uh, very few of them at that. And they were just fleet charts of local areas at the beginning of time. Um, I, I find that an extraordinary statement, really. I think that we have been so close with exchanges, uh, with a methodology, of course, as Rod has so amply uh, portrayed. Uh, we followed every move, hydrographic survey instructions, uh, techniques, all came from the UK and mutual exchanges were extraordinarily beneficial and highly sought after. Uh, within the service, we have um, uh, benefited enormously and have really enjoyed the contact. Um, it, it's sort of taken for granted, I think, within the service that we have been so close and we are have been so dependent and have been really very appreciative of all that. Uh, when we've run into problems with uh, manpower, uh, we've had uh, Royal Navy officers on loan uh, at sea and ashore. We've had two in recent times, hydrographers, David Haslam and John Myers, uh, to fill gaps where sudden resignations or changes in um, circumstance have uh, made that necessary. So um, I think we have, uh, we, we do recognise the uh, enormous contribution made. Uh, we followed their, we followed them uh, we were taught by them and we were integrated with them in so many different ways uh, over a long, long period of time. It's only in the very modern era that we have um, really diverged. Rodney, by 1930, after 10 years of work, what had the REN Hydrographic Service achieved? Well, this, this 10 years, as you can imagine, was a, was a very challenging time. It was the embryonic, embryonic time for the uh, Australian Hydrographic Service. Really starting from zero, it was created to meet the need to provide safe navigation, to open up ports for economic development in the post-World War I environment. And it was also accelerated because it had to fill uh, the shortfall as the British Admiralty could no longer provide all the resources that it had previously done to the colony you know, when, when Australia had been a colony. 
Also, this first decade uh, was one of amazing productivity. It was like everyone had something to prove and they did their best to do so. Up until 1926, there were generally two survey ships operating. Uh, HMAS Geranium, which was mentioned earlier, was replaced by HMAS Moresby in 1926. And then the, um, the UK provided vessels, HMS Phantom um, started, it was there until 1926, and then HMS Herald replaced it between, sorry, that was 1924, and then uh, that was replaced by Herald until 1926. Royal Navy survey officers commanded all those ships during this first decade. They conducted the surveys. They oversaw the development of the Australian naval officers who would become the nucleus of the new RAN hydrographic service. For the first four years, most of the surveys were related to strategic port and potential port areas around Northern Australia, places that didn't turn out to be maybe the ports that we expected, places like Bino Harbour, Vanstart Bay, and Napier Broome Bay, even Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, uh, and also surveys around Darwin, which obviously has gained that strategic importance. Further east, there were surveys around Gulf Carpentaria, and of course, the Torres Strait and its eastern and western approaches. During the mid-20s, uh, the shift in the focus moved down to the Queensland coast, what was called the Cumberland Channel Survey, the Great Barrier Reef, and that was mainly for economic purposes. We, uh, Fiona mentioned earlier that Geranium was fitted with a seaplane to progress these surveys in this reef-strewn waters. And that was the first known use of aircraft to support hydrographic surveying. But later, another aircraft was um, stationed at Bowen on the Queensland coast, and that supported Moresby's survey operations between 1926 and 1929. This was a big survey and uh, a lot of country to cover, and the biggest challenge was the triangulation work. That was carried out by the ship and uh, most of the survey work was undertaken by, by boats. They used a mosaic of aerial photographs and aerial sketches um, to support that work. Unfortunately, the planned survey wasn't quite complete before the Great Depression forced the decommission of Moresby in 1929. But even after that, the hydrographic department was effectively disbanded, survey personnel posted to other RAN units they still carried out detached survey boat, boat surveys in ports around Australia, which improved hydrographic information and helped to maintain the skills of those surveyors, which became so important only another handful of years later. So in retrospect, that first 10 years was recruiting the right people and training them to become hydrographic specialists. And that was the most important outcome of the period. They also did a lot of the preliminary survey works in Northern Australia and started to open up uh, inside the Great Barrier Reef. Those, those surveyors who were trained in the 20s, um, particularly, I think, worthy of note, was under Edgell in Moresby. They went on to play really important roles in the war years a decade later. Yeah, Fiona, as we've heard the work and the conditions uh, of the survey teams and the survey ships and their crews, were quite arduous. Now, in 1934, HMS Moresby experienced a mutiny. Can you explain what happened? As you've just highlighted, uh, survey work was no doubt arduous. 
Um, additionally, we also have to remember these ships were largely designed for operating in northern European waters. The sailors would have been hot and cramped um, whilst conducting survey operations in the tropics. Not long prior to Moresby's incident in 1934, sailors had also received um, reductions or experienced reductions in pay. The catalyst for the so-called mutiny uh, occurred in the early morning of the 19th of August in 1934. An able seaman punched a petty officer who had admonished him for dirtying the ship's paintwork while attempting to move a crate, a seemingly minor infraction. Able seaman Thomas Fletcher was arrested and he was restrained in irons to front a court-martial when the ship appeared um, returned to Darwin. That was not the end of it, though. At breakfast that day, a group of sailors, 27 in all, decided to ignore the bosun's call to work and when confronted by the XO, said they were protesting against conditions and discipline aboard Moresby. Interestingly, the captain decided to charge the sailors by warrant rather than court-martial, and largely the punishments were centred around removal of merit and good conduct badges. This proved not necessarily a decision that was endorsed, Later, the Naval Board disagreed with the captain, believing that the charges and the subsequent punishment were an underreaction to what they considered a mutiny. As a result, after an inquiry, seven of the sailors that were involved were actually discharged from the Navy. So what we now know as the Moresby Mutiny was thus recorded in history. Now, John Compton... Despite this, Moresby continued to work well into the 1930s in northern waters. Now, unusually, she helped play a role in securing the air route to England. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, Qantas Empire Airways wanted, together with Imperial Airways from the United Kingdom, to set up a flight program from Australia to UK. And they decided they would do it by flying boat. So they needed bases. Qantas, as you know, um, was the Queensland and Northern Territory Air Service based in Brisbane. They set up their headquarters for this, this um, endeavor at Rose Bay in Sydney in late 1930s. And they were planning to fly via water runways across the world. And Groot Island was, was uh, chosen as one of the landing places uh, for this first uh, series of attempts. Now, Moresby was working in Groot Island. Uh, she uh, had had her time in the Northern Territory and they were all a bit fed up. So they wrote a little poem about going away from uh, the Gulf and Groot Island. And uh, I'll read it to you. Farewell to the Gulf, we are glad to go. 
from such a cursed place of woe, of winds that blow without cessation, of waves that cause us most much vexation, of flies that bite and thickly cluster, of Aborigines in rigs that don't pass muster, of penters uh, spluttering in the night, of stars most cruelly shot on sight, of airway bases in the making, of dashes north when Vulcan's quaking, of mails delayed and stores depleted, of cuts and sores that must be treated, of recreation scant of late, of death that robs us of a mate, of echo sounding and tide pole party, or hoist alert and lower hearty, of provisions for six, or it might be seven, of amazing discovery that Darwin is heaven, of beards that are and beards that ain't, of hatchways and bulkheads smothered in paint, of the question often asked, are you coming next year? Of the usual answer, no bloody fear. And so to the Gulf we say goodbye, the 17th day in the month of July. There, well, they were fed up. But they came back, of course, because Darwin had become a great place. This flying boat expedition uh, was very successful. The first flight left Rose Bay on the 5th of July, 1938. And it was 10 days to London with 15 passengers. The passengers had a wonderful time. They had a cabin, they had uh, a promenade deck, they had observation posts and 10 days to London, 40 days by sea, 10 days by air. So it was an important job and it was well done. And the service became very successful. And of course, uh, was the notion of it and the utilization of flying boats for long distance uh, communication became terribly important during World War II. Rodney, speaking of World War II and the outbreak of World War II, the Hydrographic Service obviously was to embark on some of its most important work for our nation. What were the main roles it had at this point? Yeah, when, when hostilities threatened, uh, the first thing that the Navy did was to abandon the hydrographic effort and redeploy all the skilled hydrographers to general Navy duties. Well, they were qualified seamen warfare officers first, I guess, and so that seemed to be the priority. It's, it's, it's funny, this is, seems to be a repeat of history because the same sort of thing happened to Admiral Beaufort in the mid-19th century where he built eight new survey paddle steamers and immediately they were commissioned, they were seconded as patrol boats in another conflict with the French. And uh, this is a little bit out of time context, but the same thing happened again at the beginning of the 21st century when our two new hydrographic ships were uh, commissioned and then soon after painted grey and redeployed for border protection operations. That's a bit of a digression, but um, I think the, the key to mention here, Moresby, uh, was reverted to general service in December 1939 and deployed for escort duties and anti-submarine training. And it actually took another year for the Navy to come to their senses and uh, re-establish the hydrographic role. Um, in the meantime, during 1940, boat surveys were conducted around the ports needed to support the Navy, including Port Jackson, Gage Roads and Fremantle in the west and Port Moresby as, as a strategic um, port. 
then finally in December 1940, Moresby was retasked for strategic surveys and suddenly there was a rush to get more survey ships operating. Um, there was another vessel, HMAS Vigilant, which was taken over from the Customs Department and tasked to support Moresby in surveys. And their first priority was then surveys around the Great Northeast Channel to clear the eastern route from Torres Strait to the Coral Sea. And then they next focused on surveying potential reef entrances down the Barrier Reef all the way down towards Cairns. Many of these entrances would later be mined during the war as a defensive measure. And I recall taking a team of clearance divers in Batano to one of these openings near Cape Melville in 1986 to dispose of a mine that had made an appearance there. The Barrier Reef opening survey was interrupted when Moresby was retasked to survey Simpson Harbour and Blanche Bay in Rabaul following the eruption of the Vulcan vol volcano. Again, a bit more. Um, deja vu. I actually resurveyed Simpson Harbour and Blanche Bay in Flinders in uh, 1995 after another eruption of the Vulcan and Tavuva volcanoes. Fiona Smith was with, with me on that survey. Rabaul, which is where Simpson Harbour is, was regarded as a very strategic, um, as it was an excellent deep water harbour surrounded by mountains and relatively easy to protect, and the Germans had had a strong presence there until World War I. After there, Vigilant went on their own uh, survey in Aspley Strait and Bino Harbour near Darwin. And so by the time Japan entered the war at the end of 1941, really not much effort had been put into surveys in Papua New Guinea, apart from that Simpson Harbour survey. And pretty well the whole of the Southwest Pacific really remained a lot of a blank canvas and certainly wasn't suitably surveyed for military operations. Suddenly, this area took on a whole new interest in December 1941. And people started to realise that the Australian and Japanese mandates joined each other at the equator just north of Papua New Guinea. And the attack, if it was to come, would be coming through Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands waters. Clearly, 1942 was going to be a very different and difficult year. If Fiona Freeman, to meet this expanded demand for surveys, as Rod has just mentioned, the Hydrographic Service used a variety of different vessels. Can you talk about the range of vessels that were pressed into service as hydrographic survey vessels? Well, suffice to say that with the increased demand and acknowledgement for activities, a very, very wide range of vessels found themselves undertaking survey operations. Rod has just mentioned um, a few of them, but Moresby, which we've spoken about a number of times already, continued conducting survey operations in addition to her escort duties. Polaris, Stella and Winter were requisitioned trawlers that provided valuable survey information in the New Guinea campaign. And of note, Shepparton and Vanella Corvettes that were commissioned in 1943 undertook work in New Guinea preceding landings to reoccupy territory. So I guess in summary, by 1945, the RAN Surveying Service consisted of the RAN Sloops Moresby and Warrigo, the frigate Lachlan, the Corvettes Benalla, Castlemaine, Uchuka, Horsham and Shepparton, the trawlers Polaris, Stella and Winter, 
the lighthouse tenders Bangalore and Cape Lewin, and three harbour defence motor launches. So certainly a diverse fleet meeting a diverse task um, in a reasonably ad hoc way during those war years. John Compton, perhaps by this stage, the Hydrographic Service's finest hour was its involvement in the Philippines campaign. Can you briefly describe for us their contribution? Yes. The Philippines, well, Papua New Guinea was the training ground, if you like, for the relaunching of Douglas MacArthur's Southwest Pacific thrust from New Guinea through into the Philippines so that he could return. And a task force was set up, a joint task force, Australian and American task force, and uh, of survey ships, task force 70. And task group 70.5 was commanded various times by commanders Oom, Little, Hunt, and others. When they got to the Philippines, landings were planned and the survey ships were, and their boat parties were expected to clear the beaches, indicate danger and provide uh, guidance for the landing craft going ashore. I'd like to read two little paragraphs from uh, Ian Fennyworth's book, Bravo Zulu, which is Honours and Awards to Australian Naval Personnel, Volume 1. HMAS Warrigo was involved in preparing for the landings near Zamboanga in the Philippines. All the awards made to Warrigo's people were related to her service as a survey ship and several were for gallantry in the face of the enemy during the pre-landing surveys of beaches near Zamboanga in the Philippines. On the 9th of July, March, sorry, uh, 1945, beach sounding parties were sent close inshore to sound the landing beaches to mark obstructions and to lay buoys, marking the approach lanes for the landing craft. As their two boats approached the beach, they came under fire from Japanese batteries. Warrigo returned fire and the boats were recalled, but the mission was urgent and it was rescheduled for later that day with supportive fire called in from the US Navy. Despite the danger, the two boats had almost completed their mission when one was hit by a Japanese shell and two of the members of the survey party, including an American officer, were seriously wounded. The boat's engine was barely serviceable and the party was in danger of drifting ashore, but the crew managed to get her off while returning fire to the Japanese. The boat returned to Warrigo with a hole in the petrol tank stopped by the finger of one of the men and fuel pumped up to the engine by hand. The incident simply reinforced the fact that conducting survey operations in advance of assaults was a dangerous task. The commander of task group 70.5, Commander Carl Oom, RAN, made several recommendations for awards. The coxswain of the boat, Sub-Lieutenant Donald Cole, from Melbourne was awarded the DSC for his calmness under fire and his skill in extracting the party from a very difficult situation. He was just short of his 20th birthday. Petty Officer Jack Kidd from Thornbury, Victoria, the senior survey recorder and the experienced member of the party with 10 years service, 
received a DSM for first putting out the fire started by the shells and for assisting with the wounded men. Survey recorder Eric Mole from Croydon in South Australia, one of the wounded men who had seen war service in the Mediterranean in Vendetta and in Nesta, also received a DSM. The bow gunner, able seaman Ralph Tremothy, RANR, from Bordertown, South Australia, who had been in the ship since October 43, received a mention in dispatches for returning Japanese fire, assisting in extinguishing the flames, and then holding his finger in the hole of the petrol tank to stop fuel from leaking out. Now, that was the flavour of the survey work in the Philippines and in other places, Borneo, uh, beginning from PNG, but Leyte Gulf, Lingayen Gulf, similar things occurred. The survey boats were in the van, so to speak, of the landing, having been in the, in the precursor stage um, in a very, very, very vulnerable situation. All in all, the hydrographic service personnel received two OBEs, 13 DSCs, four DSMs, 15 mentions in dispatches, three US legions of merit, one US Medal of Freedom with bronze palm and two United States bronze stars, uh, which is a, a, a testament to uh, A, the skill with which they performed their work and B, uh, their gallantry and persistence in the face of great difficulty. Rodney and John's just talked about some of the awards that were given to members of the hydrographic service. Can you also tell us about some of the other leading personalities in the hydrographic service in these war years? Look, um, I think John's pretty well stolen the thunder on a lot of those on a lot of those uh, people I was going to mention, but I will delve into them in a little bit more detail. But what I want to start with is what I mentioned earlier at the outbreak of the war, hydrographic service personnel were scattered to the four winds and um, posted to all sorts of other vessels. And as a result of this, um, during 1941 and 1942, um, there were three members of the hydrographic service or hydrographic service specialists who were lost in action. Um, Commander WH Martin was lost, posted missing from HMAS Perth when that vessel was sunk. Lieutenant Commander RW Rankin uh, commanded HMAS Yarra and was lost when he fought an engagement um, in the whilst convoying south of Java. And Lieutenant GWA Langford was also killed in um, a dive bombing attack in the Mediterranean in HMAS Parramatta. Just giving a bit more detail on some of those um, characters, I suppose, um, from the hydrographic service. As much as there were, there were probably many who were recognised well at the time, those who were recognised formally uh, included um, a number of names which just kept on rotating through just about every vessel that's been mentioned during the war years. Wheatley, Hunt, Little, Martin, Boom, Gale, Tancred and Bolton. Um, Ross Valder Wheatley had been in the hydrographic branch right from the beginning. Um, and he was the first 
officer in charge of the hydrographic branch during 1940, but then uh, commanded Warrego, conducting um, minesweeping for a few years after that. He was relieved as at the hydrographic branch by a chap named uh, Commander Robert Baxter Hunt as the OIC of the Hydrographic Bureau in 1940. Um, but then he moved back to sea and commanded Moresby in Papua New Guinea and Queensland, did a stint as Naval Officer in charge Port Moresby, uh, returned to sea in Bungaree for PNG and Queensland surveys and was awarded an OBE. He was then appointed as the CTD 70.5 afloat in Gascoigne and operations in the Philippines, Philippines, which um, John Crompton has just mentioned, and then later CO Moresby and CO Warrigo. They certainly rotated through the vessels, and, I'm, and I'll go through a couple more. He was also awarded the US Medal of Freedom. Captain Colin Goyder Little took over the hydrographic branch in 1942. And he was charged with the daunting responsibility for coordinating surveys under the direction of the US Commander Amphibious Forces 7th Fleet. He then later on went on to command Shepparton for surveys in Papua New Guinea and Moresby. Um, and at the end of the war, he was awarded a DSC. He'd been mentioned in dispatches and uh, gained the US Legion of Merit. Uh, Carl Boom spent 1939 surveying at sea to, through to 1941, surveying at sea in the UK, right in the thick of the war there, uh, before returning to Australia to command Wyala in 1942 for PNG surveys and then Shepparton and Warrego, um, before returning to the hydrographic office. Not only was he awarded an OBE and the Legion, US Legion of Merit, but he also was awarded the Gill Memorial Award for um, recognising this hydrographic services contribution to knowledge of New Guinean waters. I think um, John's given a pretty good summary of the overall awards. Um, there were certainly a handful of distinguished officers who, who led different aspects of hydrographic work throughout the PNG campaign and then the um, CTG 70.5 operations in the Southwest Pacific. And they were, uh, many of them were recognised by awards. So as we wrap up this first centenary episode on the REN Hydrographic Service, can I ask each of you for some concluding thoughts about these early years of the service? First off, John Compton. Well, from the formation in 1920, uh, it was a very steep learning curve, and um, I think it showed that there was a real place within the Navy and the Defence Force as a whole for hydrographic work. And the enthusiasm with which uh, the first, attend first incumbents uh, progressed and how rapidly they progressed up until the 1930s uh, when the Depression came and everyone was dispersed except for the boat parties, which maintained the skill. And then to suddenly find at the end of the 30s a strategic situation deteriorating rapidly and for these men to come forward and be real, real leaders uh, at sea in 
very, very dangerous situations. And I think that um, it speaks well of the uh, contribution made by the Royal Navy in training these people in, and in the assistance given by the Royal Navy in the development of uh, the Australian Hydrographic Service. Uh, my thoughts are that I think in a period of time um, up to the end of the war uh, was a remarkable uh, effort uh, and, and um, one to be very, very proud of indeed in terms of one's heritage. Rodney, a thought from you. In my mind, this first quarter of a century was a very good start to the new Royal Australian Navy Hydrographic Service. It had developed a strong team of professionals and delivered some very important survey results as well. And most importantly, it had gained national recognition as the organisation that would be held responsible to deliver safety of navigation for Australian waters for years to come. There's no doubt that these first 25 years were tough times, doing tough work in clearly arduous conditions, mainly in Northern Australia and in Papua New Guinea. It was during this period that the Survey Service's well-known catchphrase was adopted. No day too long, no task too arduous. In these early years, the AHS was strongly supported by the British Admiralty, but within a decade or so, they'd built enough capacity to stand on their own. Taking on the chart production role during World War II was a major milestone. And overall, I would assess the first 25 years as very satisfactory standard achieved. And finally, Fiona Freeman. In my mind, the first years were the period that clearly defined the character of the service that's continued and continues to this day. Um, highly versatile, professional, hardworking and unassuming quiet achievers laid during that first, that first period, laid the very solid foundations of the organisation that people now very readily recognise as the Australian Hydrographic Service. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to John Compton, Fiona Freeman and Rod Nairn. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, and its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. For this set of episodes, however, the Naval Studies Group would also like to acknowledge the work of the noted hydrographer and historian Mr Kevin Slade, in particular for his advice and information in the preparation for this episode. Tragically, Kevin died suddenly earlier this year, and these episodes are dedicated to his memory. So thank you all for joining us, and for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now. <laughs>